Ah, so good to see you here today, and thank you online as well for joining us. Uh, I sent out an email this week, and, and I realize not everyone gets all of our emails, and even more so, not everyone reads all of our emails. Uh, but just in case, just to, to, to verify what we're saying, to confirm it, and just in case you did not receive the email, we have simply moved up our regathering uh, agenda, our strategy. So uh, the separators have been removed from the worship center. No masks required in, indoors. Uh, and when we return June 6th to uh, Sunday school, we'll not be requiring COVID masks then as well. Now, I underscore as always, however, you do what's best for you. You need to do what's best for you, uh, what you're most comfortable with. If you're still online with us, stay online until you feel comfortable transitioning back in. If you still need to follow other precautions or, or standard precautions, feel free to do that. Absolutely. Uh, and we want to help accommodate that as well. I did make, a, 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 in that email I sent out, and those of you who came uncaffeinated this morning, expecting the coffee station to be ready, uh, I, I apologize to you in particular. Please stay awake. Uh, I, I jumped the gun. I was just excited about everything getting back in and did not check with the welcome team, specifically Miss Judy. Uh, and she immediately, when she read that email, got back with me and said, no, not until June 6th. So the coffee station will be up and running June 6th, and we appreciate the welcome teams for making that happen. The fact that it's not this morning is on me and my excitement of getting things back in action, getting things going. Last week, we began a message series, Father of Lies, where we are looking at the handiwork of Satan. We are looking at the mind behind the battle for truth in our culture, uh, the same mind behind that battle for truth that's been going on since the Garden of Eden. You may have been with us last week as we started this message series, uh, but let me just give you a feel for what we're doing. Uh, we're going to see how Satan works to downgrade the truth of God. The truth of God, the Word of God, is absolute and objective. It, it doesn't, it's not your truth, it's God's truth. It's universal, it's eternal, it exists forever and always. Satan, however, wants you to downgrade God's truth and start believing that you have your own truth. And that's the battle in our culture. And you can see the progress of that battle continuing in our culture as more and more people are led to believe that your feelings, your preferences, and your opinions are what truly matter. None of those things are objective. They're all subjective. So they are fleeting with the moment. Your feelings, your preferences, your opinions. And everyone has their own feelings, preferences, and opinions. But not a lot of us realize there is a mind behind that. There is uh, an enemy who cultivates that battle for truth, and he's been doing so for generations of humanity. In this message series, we're taking a look at his tools. We're taking a look at, at his handiwork so we can see how Satan works and how to recognize him. The thing about Satan is he doesn't have to be very creative with humanity. Uh, because we're pretty gullible in all the same ways. And he's been using the same tools for generations. Uh, several years ago, I'm thinking maybe 10, 12 years ago or so, I was in Winston-Salem. Kim and I were visiting family for Christmas. And my brother, if, you're not, if you don't know me well, I'm the youngest of three sons. And my middle brother lives in Winston-Salem. And gave me a call and he said, hey, this Saturday, can you help me take a gun safe 
to the mountains. He has a little hunting place in the mountains, and he needed to take a, a gun safe up there. And me, being, being the younger brother, said, sure. So I came over that evening. It was probably about 5 o'clock or so and uh, uh, to help him load the gun safe on the bed of his pickup. And we were going to go up about, it's about an hour and a half up to the Wilkesboro area uh, to where he hunts to go into that little, little cabin there and, and unload this gun safe. Now, I need, to, I need to put in right here, I'm very much a creature of habit, and I am early to, ri- early to bed and early to rise. I'm pretty much worthless after 10 p.m. That, that's just the truth. Uh, when Kim married me, she had no idea I was the worst person to be with on New Year's Eve. It, I'm absolutely, the party ends at 10 p.m. for Bob Weathers. It's just, it's just done. And I think the rest of the world is nuts to stay up past midnight to watch a ball drop Anyway, so, but that's me. So I asked him, what what should I do? How long is this going to take? Hour and a half up there, hour there, hour and a half back. No problem. You'll be eating Cheerios by 9 o'clock. I said, okay, we're good to go. So off we go to the mountains. Now, well, well, first I go over to his house and we load the gun safe. Now, to load the gun safe, he had this really cool pulley system set up. My brother's one of those guys that he thinks in advance, and if he doesn't already own it, he'll buy it. And if he can't buy it, he'll build it. And he can do it pretty rapidly. So he had this pulley system as a good size gun safe. And, and we pull that thing out of his basement. And through the work of physics, leverage, and this pulley system, we load it onto the bed of his truck, just flat on the bed of his truck. And off we go to the mountains. Now, it occurs to me about halfway up there, we didn't bring this pulley system with us. So when we're just about there, I said, hey, now, David, how exactly are we going to unload this? He said, oh, I've got a tool for that. Don't worry about it. So he pulls in and he backs up to uh, the steps leading up to a back porch, which led to the inside of this little hunting hunting cabin. Uh, And we still have no tools with us, right? And he, he backs up and we put the tailgate down and he says, I'll be right back. And he disappears into the darkness, there's a shed out back, and he returns with an identical pulley system. This one happens to be mobile. And he takes a few minutes and he sets it up. Well, it turns out the way the porch was structured, it wasn't going to work quite the way it did at home in Winston-Salem. And we realized we had a problem, uh, and we both, being smart people, looked at each other and said, we have a problem. He looked at me and said, I've got a tool for that. And he went out to the tool shed, disappeared out there, and he came back, and sure enough, he had some other tool that provided more leverage, and we got that thing up, and we got it on the porch, and then we found out we couldn't quite get it inside the screen door to the porch that had to get, we had to go through to, to get it in the house, and he looked at me, and he said, I've got a tool for that. And he disappeared into the darkness, and he went out to the shed, and he came back uh, with this, the whole unique kind of different system that helped us leverage that safe through the door, and then we had to pivot it into the back door of the cabin, then pivot it again, and on. And every time we hit some kind of bend in the road or problem along the way, which tended to multiply as we went, he would look at me and he would say, I've got a tool for that. And he wasn't kidding. And what was interesting was nearly all of the tools he had in the shed at the mountains were duplicates of the tools he had in his house in Winston-Salem. Same tools, different place, same use. Well, you'll, you'll be glad to know that the end of the story is we got the gun safe in place, not without destroying a closet door, I would add, but hey, not my closet door, but 
I arrived back home the next morning and climbed into bed at 4 a.m. And he was just getting started. The moral of that story is you don't have to have different tools to do the job. Sometimes you just need duplicate tools to use over and over and over again, even in different places. And that's how Satan works. Satan doesn't need different tools to do the job. He just needs to duplicate the same tools different times, different places with different people because he doesn't have to be very creative. We respond to the same things that he does, and he knows this. That's what this message series is about, recognizing the handiwork, the tools of the enemy of God in our lives, in particular how he downgrades the truth of God and gets you and I to believe that we have our own truth. That is the battle for truth in our culture. That's what we're seeing all around us. That's what's accelerating and escalating in our culture, the belief that every human being makes their own truth. My feelings, my preferences, my opinions matter more. And Satan has a toolbox full of tools to make you believe that. And every time he makes you believe that, he gets you one more step away from degrading God's truth and stepping away from God's truth. Look with me this morning at the book of Genesis in your Bible. Find chapter 2. We're going to go all the way back to the beginning. Because I want you to see, as we learned last week from Jesus, Satan is the father of lies. It's in his nature to lie. In fact, Jesus says there is no truth in him. As we read it last week, there is no truth in him. Satan cannot tell the truth. It's not in his nature. His native language is lying. By contrast, we learn that God always tells the truth because God is truth. God doesn't choose to tell you the truth. God can do not do otherwise. God doesn't have to choose to tell you the truth. He is truth. All that he says, all that he does is truth. But Satan is a liar by nature. He's always lying. It's just what he does. And he can't do otherwise. And this morning we're going to look at the first lie. And what I want you to hone in on this morning is Satan's first lie is a continuing lie. It's a continuing effort throughout generations to get people not to trust God. Because if he can get you not to trust God, he can get you to downgrade God's truth. When you stop trusting God, you stop believing God and stop believing his truth. So the first step for Satan in the big picture is always to convince you not to trust God. Not to trust God. Look at this with me. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 17. Uh, A couple of verses here lay the foundation for us in what we're going to look at coming up. Genesis chapter 2 and verse, uh, verse 15. Genesis 2 verse 15. The Bible says the Lord God took the man, that is Adam, and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will surely die or certainly die. God's very specific. He gives a prohibition and he says what the outcome will be if you disobey this prohibition. Now the next thing that happens in the story is that God creates Eve as a companion, a partner for Adam in fulfilling the purposes in the Garden of Eden. And we have to expect that sometime after that, Adam shared with Eve the instructions of God about the Garden of Eden. He was the one that heard it from God, and he passed it along to Eve. 
Then an undisclosed amount of time passes, and we get to chapter 3. Chapter 3 and verse 1. The Bible says, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree uh, in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delighted to look at, delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Now the setup in chapter 3 is really very simple. Uh, Satan comes to Eve. Uh, He either inhabits the snake or he is the snake. And the term translated serpent is is a simple word for snake. The Bible doesn't bother telling us all that because the point is it's Satan. It doesn't try to help us figure out all the details because the point of the story is that Satan approaches Eve. uh, But what's interesting is she doesn't seem particularly surprised at a talking snake. Isn't that interesting? That doesn't, that doesn't surprise her at all, which kind of makes you wonder what the garden was like before the fall, doesn't it? But at any rate, she has a conversation with a snake, which is identified as Satan, the enemy of God. Now, I want to underscore what we said last week. Throughout this series, it's very important to understand. In the Bible and in our experience, and, and what I believe without hesitation is that Satan is a real person a being created by God who disobeyed God and took others with him in his disobedience. Satan is not a metaphor for when bad things happen to you. And Satan is not uh, an opportunity for a way out when you do bad things. You can't give him credit for every bad thing you do. The Bible assumes this enemy of God throughout the Bible, throughout the entire scriptures. The Bible assumes Satan is real, active, and an enemy of God, and he demonstrates his animosity toward God by working in the lives of fallen creatures, God's people, God's creation, and seeking to destroy, or as we said last week, we saw last week, to persuade people, to destroy people, and to mislead people or confuse people. And we'll see that pattern unpack here Uh, as well as in other passages that we'll see in this series. Satan's very real. But we meet him for the first time here. And notice the very first thing he does is contradict God. The very first thing Satan seeks to do is so into the mindset of Eve and humanity a question. Can you really trust God and what he said? Can you really trust God and what he said? Did God really say you can't eat? from the trees, from any of the trees in the garden. See, Satan knows something that we we tend to overlook. If he can get us to question God, he can get us not to trust God. And if he can get us not to trust God, then he can get us not to trust God's word. He knows the battle is for objective truth, God's truth. But it doesn't start there. If he attacked that directly and he flat out said, you shouldn't trust anything God says, 
that would raise questions in our minds. Instead, what he does is he attacks the nature of God. He attacks who God is. He attacks our trust in God. And he whittles away at that trust in God by attacking other areas. And that's what we're going to focus on here for just a moment. Now, pay close attention to what Satan's doing. If he can get you not to trust God, he can get you not to trust God's objective truth. And if you don't trust God's objective truth, that is God's word, then what are you going to trust? What are you going to trust? You're not going to go through life with not trusting anyone. Who are you going to trust? What are you going to trust? Your only alternative is to trust yourself. Your only alternative from if you're not trusting God and not trusting his truth, and not living by his truth, your only alternative is to say, well, then I must have the truth. I can do whatever I want to do. I can be whoever I want to be. Remember, he's your creator, and Satan wants to tear that down too. So Satan, if he can get you not to trust God and not trust God's word, he can get you to think that you create your own life, that you're in charge of your existence, that your feelings matter more than objective truth, that your preferences should be honored no matter what. Never mind what other people want. It's what you want that matters because that's your truth. And we go there quickly when we stop trusting God and stop trusting his word. So that's where Satan builds a bulkhead first. I want you to look with me this morning at his three-pronged attack. Uh, three, three areas Satan attacks in the effort to keep, get you not to trust God And to tear down that trust is to tear down and degrade your trust in God's truth and to turn you into someone who just trusts yourself for everything. Look at this with me. His three-pronged attack. What does he attack? The first thing he attacks is the Word of God. Now, we're going to see this this morning and over and over in this series because the Word of God is God's objective truth. That's the area that Satan is ultimately after. And I want to offer this, to the same degree that you know God's objective truth, you know God. And to the same degree you know God, you trust God. So to the same degree that he can keep you from knowing God's objective truth or trusting God's objective truth, he keeps you from knowing God, which keeps you from trusting God. See how that works? And if he can keep you from trusting God, from knowing God, and believing God's objective truth, then he turns it to you and says, hey, you just got to trust yourself. This is why all of secular society, from Disney to HBO to MTV to the Internet to Twitter, all of secular society, apart from God, parrots the same claim. Trust yourself. Believe in yourself. Live for yourself. Find your own dream. Find your own way. You are your own creator. Where do you think that came from? Generations of people saying, you know what? I really can't trust God. I've got to make my own truth. I've got to believe in myself. Yeah. So first he attacks the word of God. Satan, excuse me, Eve crumbles under this first attack. Verse 2, he says, hey, did God really say that? That's Satan's approach. Did God really say that? Well, let's talk about this a minute. Now, I would offer her first problem is that she engages the serpent in a conversation to begin with. That's her first problem. In two weeks, we'll see how Jesus 
has the same kind of conversation, but the reason he wins it is is because he approaches it entirely differently than Eve does. She has a conversation. Satan says, did God really say that? Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, and she thinks she's offering an answer. We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it, touch it, or you will die. You must not eat it or touch it, or you will die. Now, right away, Eve tweaks God's word. And she does it in two ways. And both of these we see in how we approach God's word. Both of them. The first thing you'll notice she says is how, or how, what she does is, is how she describes the tree itself. She describes it by its physical location. Is that what God did? No. God described it by its spiritual value. It's the tree, the fruit of the tree, it's, it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. See, God has an eternal perspective about your life. And God says, this is the spiritual value of being loyal to my word. There's an eternal value to it. And that's how God described the tree. What Eve does is she downgrades it immediately. First thing she does is she removes the spiritual impact, the significance itself of the tree itself, and she makes it a physical and material fact. She describes it by its location. It's that tree over there in the garden. She says nothing about its significance, nothing about the reason that God did not want them to eat it and the reason it would lead to death if they did. Wow. We do that. See, we look at everything from a material and physical perspective. And if we're not careful, we downgrade God's commands, we downgrade God's word, we bring it down to our level, and we eliminate the spiritual significance of what God is teaching, the eternal perspective that God has on our lives. As soon as we do that, we're tweaking God's word, taking away from it. But our inclination in our sinful nature is to always be more concerned about what's happening in the here and now than we are at what's happening in eternity. And we forget that in relationship with God through Jesus Christ, he is using you for eternity. He's concerned about your eternal condition and he sees your life in the bigger picture and the greater significance of who you are. So to downgrade God's word is to downgrade you and who you are in the creative design of Almighty God. And that's exactly what Eve does. The second thing she does is she adds to what God says. See, once you start to downgrade God's word and the significance of that word and what God says, it's pretty easy just to add to or take away, isn't it? He didn't say they couldn't touch it. But she tells Satan, well, he said we couldn't touch it. He didn't say that. It sounds fairly mundane, doesn't it? But what she has illustrated is a lack of loyalty to God's word to what God actually says. Again, be sure you're here in two weeks to see how Jesus handles the same thing. Satan has successfully gotten her to question God by questioning God's word. Is that really what God said? Is that really what God wants? Does accuracy matter? Of course it does. 2001, uh, the kind of nursery that sells plants in British Columbia sold, uh, they filled 17 orders of some perennials that went out and suddenly realized 
they had to con- contact all of the people that received any of those perennials and start getting them back in. Because they found out that a note on the perennials, that little card you get with your plants at Lowe's, well, there were, there were cards like that on those perennials that were supposed to say, all parts of this plant are toxic. Someone had changed it out to say, all parts of this plant are tasty. Accuracy matters, doesn't it? Tweak one word and it changes everything. God's objective truth is objective truth for a reason. We don't get to change it and never diminish the significance of it because God speaks to you through his objective truth. And when you follow it, when you listen to it, that's what God uses to change you. And that's also what God uses to keep you in his will, which bring us, brings us to the second prong of Satan's attack. From the word of God, he attacks the will of God. He's trying to get you not to trust God, so he attacks the word of God. Then he attacks the will of God. He attacks what God says, then he attacks what God wants. He questions God's will in a very simple way. God said, don't eat from that tree or you will surely die. Satan says, you will not die. You will not die. God is prohibiting you from doing something that's good for you. God knows that if you eat from that tree, your eyes will be opened. You'll, be, you'll know good and evil just like he does, and he doesn't want that for you. Now, the implication has carried through history. This is the beginning of the myth that God's commands, God's prohibitions are always designed to keep us from having fun. Yeah, right here. This is where it started. That all of God's prohibitions, all of God's commands, all of God's will, if you surrender to God's will, God just doesn't want you to have fun. Satan wants you to picture in your mind that God is some fusty, dusty old man with a stick, and every time you smile, he says, hey, stop that. He doesn't want you to have fun, Satan says. He knows it would be good for You're not going to die. God made that up. He wants you to be trapped and, 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 and not have any fun. But you read what God said. God is concerned for the well-being of his people. God says very simply, if you do this, death will enter in. Don't do that. Don't do that. God's prohibitions are not to keep us from having fun. They're to give us life. So we'll stay on track with who he is and what he wants in our lives. Yet we still fall into this trap. Let me give you two common ways that we fall into this very trap of, of questioning God's will and questioning what God wants. And Satan loves it when we do this. This is right in, up his alley. If we do this, we, he knows that he succeeded in getting us to question the word of God, to question the will of God, and therefore to question God himself and, and, and not to trust God. The first way is this, that, that lie, that, that circulating that lie, that God's prohibitions, God's laws, God's do-nots uh, are all about keeping us from having fun. Or here's the way we usually say it as believers, being happy. And we approach it this way. I think God would want me to be happy. Now, what usually follows after that phrase is something unbiblical. 
something explicitly against the will of God. And one of the most common ones, and I can tell you from three decades of pastoral experience, this is a very common way we say this. I think God wants me to be happy, so I'm going to leave my spouse and go with that other person. Yeah. What happened to God's objective truth? What happened to those vows? What happened to his promise that he would get you through the good times and the bad times? That he could change hearts and change lives? What happened to that? No, I think God wants me to be happy. So I'm going to do something explicitly unbiblical and against God's will. But that's what we do. That's how Satan gets Christians also to question the will of God. Another way Satan does it is he gets us to explicitly renounce what the Bible says is the will of God. Christians spend a lot of time saying, I wonder what God's will is for me. Very little time saying, what does God want me to do? What do what's God's will for every person, every believer? And God is very explicit about this. God doesn't hold back in telling us what his will is for every Christian, every believer. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. I referenced this just quickly last week. But 2 Corinthians 2, verses 10 and 11. Here's what Paul says to the effect. And forgive me, I'm summarizing. But this is what he says. That we should forgive one another because in Christ that is at, Christ is at work and are forgiving one another. Then in verse 11, Paul says, because when we don't, it gives Satan an open door and it shows that he ha- it gives him the advantage, is what Paul says. It gives him the advantage and Paul says, We are not ignorant of the schemes of the devil. Sadly, we are. We are ignorant of his schemes because we think unforgiveness is a virtue. We think that Christians should not have to forgive one another and we we don't even realize that's Satan's open door to get in, to be divisive, to tear down the church, to tear down the family. If he can convince you Not to forgive one another, he's made his way into the church, into the family, into the lives of believers. So we like to tweak God's word and God's will. We like to do it to decide that my preferences and my feelings matter more. What makes me happy is what matters more than his objective truth. And then we do it by just ignoring the explicit will of God in Scripture. We just say, well, I'm just not going to do what God wants me to do because I know better than God. So Satan attacks us at the word of God to get us not to trust God. He attacks the will of God. And the third prong are the ways of God, the nature of God, the motivations of God, the way God works. You will certainly not die, Satan says. What's he saying? God lied to you. God lied to you. That's what Satan's saying. God is not good after all. He gets you to question the character of God. If he can get you to question the goodness of God, he can get you to wonder whether or not God is good, whether or not God loves you, whether or not God cares about you, whether or not God is telling you the truth in the first place. You will not die, but Satan knows that you will. God is not good, but Satan knows that he is. God is lying to you, but Satan knows that he's the liar not God. And human beings that are ignorant of the schemes of the devil, human beings who do not recognize what Satan has in the tool shed or his handiwork, fall into that lie 
You can't trust God. So trust yourself. You're a good person, which means God is not. You should have your own plan for your life because God doesn't know what he's doing. Questioned the goodness of God, the character of God, the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, the ways of God and his motivations, and you're falling into Satan's hands. He's the enemy. He's the father of lies. Last week we read in John chapter 8 where Jesus said Satan has been a murderer from the beginning. This is what he's talking about, this passage. Because by this deceit and Eve's falling to temptation, Adam and Eve falling to temptation, death and sin entered into the world. So while human beings might raise their hand against one another, might actually take one of those lives. It can be traced all the way back to the father of lies, to the murderer from the beginning, to the one who was there and seized the opportunity to tempt a woman who was willing to tweak God's word and for whatever reason fell to the lie that she could not trust God. There's one more thing Satan did in this conversation that at first we might pass over with with little notice. But for Adam and Eve and for all of us now, even, even those that, especially those who follow Christ, it's of great significance. When we read that God had created Adam and had put him in the garden, did you notice how God was named, how he was referenced? He was the Lord God, and the Lord God did this, and the Lord God did that, and the Lord God said this. The word translated God in this passage is a general term in the Hebrew language that refers to God as the transcendent creator of the universe, the the great God Almighty, you might say. But the term translated Lord in the book of Genesis is the covenant name for God. Uh, This is how one of the ways we know that Moses wrote this story, that looking back, God revealed this to him, inspired him to write it. Because this is the name that God gave Moses at the burning bush. This is the name that's carried through the Old Testament as the covenant God. And this is the name that dovetails with the name of Jesus Christ as the covenant God. So when Satan shows up and he starts to speak to Eve, he drops Lord and just uses God. He doesn't want her to remember that God is a relational God, that God is a caring God, that God wants a relationship with his people. He wants a covenant with his people, and he has forged it himself. He's shown up in the garden. He's had conversations with Adam and Eve. He's met them in the cool of the day. He's walked with them, called out to them, loved on them. He is their Lord God, the God of the covenant. Satan doesn't want her to remember that. doesn't want you to remember that either. And he dupes her into dropping that name. She suddenly refers to him as the great God Almighty, which he is. But that's like he's an out there somewhere God who doesn't really care for me. And he moves her along thinking that way. But God emphasizes, he is your God. He is your Lord. He is Jesus Christ that has come into the world and died on the cross for your sins to forge that relationship. He keeps his promises. He keeps his word. Follow his will and you'll know that he loves you and you know that his character is always good because he is your God. He is your Lord. He's Jesus. 
In a moment, I'm going to pray for us. And I, I want you to ask God to search your heart. Ask God if you're questioning his trust, uh, if you're questioning him, if you're downgrading him, if your trust for him is starting to diminish. Ask God to show you that. Ask God to bring you out of that. Fortify your trust in him and his word this morning. His truth is absolute objective truth. Our feelings conform to his truth, not the other way around. His will is perfect for you. He loves you. He is always good, and he is always gracious, and he's always merciful, and he's always forgiving. If you'll come back to him this morning and ask for his forgiveness, he will forgive you of your sins, cleanse you, and start over in that relationship with you. I'm going to pray for us as believers this morning. Then I'm going to pray for those who do not know Christ as their Savior, that they would enter into a relationship with their Creator today by giving their lives to Christ, trusting Him as their Savior, asking Him into their lives to forgive them of sin today. You in-house, you at home, maybe you need to do that today. Today is the day to trust Christ as your Savior. You've been listening to Satan's lies that are parroted throughout the world. Listen to God's truth. He loves you, and Christ died on the cross for you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pause in this moment, God. We're reminded today of your love for us. Your love, God, that is anchored in your truth, your unchanging truth, your eternal truth, your perfect will for us, your your everlasting righteousness and goodness toward us. God, we know you would never lie to us. You can't. Truth is your nature. You would always love us. You will always save us when we ask forgiveness and trust Christ. And you'll always help us, God, when we need help in this life. So, Father, this morning I pray for those of us in this room, God, and at home today. We know we've trusted Christ as our Savior, but, God, we realize that we're listening to those lies. We're downgrading your truth, God. We're letting it seep in just a little bit. We're questioning your goodness. You're questioning your grace. We're questioning your compassion your kindness toward us. And Father, we may even be questioning your will. We may be saying, hey, I I want to do what I want to do and God won't let me do that. God, remind us you, you just care about us. You care about who we are. And Father, forgive us for not acting on your explicit revealed will, for not letting you shape our character that we would be more like Christ. Father, forgive us for that. But today, God, I pray for all of us as believers. If you're revealing in our lives, God, something we need to confess, something we need to change, a relationship that needs to be healed, Father, show us what that is, God, and we will confess that to you because you promise that you are good and you are righteous and you will forgive us of our sins. And Father, for those in-house or at home that have never trusted Christ as their Savior, God, today I pray that they realize their need for Christ, they realize they're listening to the world, And they need to listen to you. You are our creator. So I pray today, God, they would come home to you by trusting Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, by by restoring their trust in you, our almighty God. And I pray this prayer with them today, Father. And I pray if there's just one here or at home that today would, would pray this prayer with me and trust Christ as their Savior. They'd put all their faith and trust in Christ, that they would do that today. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. And I know I can't save myself. I confess I've been trying to do that. I confess that I've been ignoring your word. I've been confess, I confess I've been listening to the lies around me. But now I hear you, God. I hear what you're saying about me. 
and I confess my sin to you. And Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for me to pay for my sins and that you're alive today. So Jesus, I ask you in faith, come into my heart, into my life. Forgive me of my sins. Cleanse me of sin and unrighteousness. Give me a home in heaven and restore my relationship to my loving covenant God through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray for those who prayed that prayer with me right now. For believers who prayed as well, that God, we would know your presence, we would know your power, we would be restored in relationship, recommitted to our walk with Christ and to our dedication to your word and your truth today. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.